bienvenidos. Welcome to the University of Michigan SHIP Chapter Alumni Series. This is your host, Gabriela Yvonne Lopez Salgado, and I'm super excited to kick off our fifth and final episode in the series today entitled Journey to a PhD. Today, we will be talking with a University of Michigan SHIP alumni, discussing what their journey was as they pursued a PhD and after graduating, as well as the support system they had and tips they have for succeeding. Let's welcome our alumni, Mario Medina. Mario was born and raised in Chicago and is Mexican-American. He graduated with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Bradley University, and he later pursued a master's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, where he also graduated with a PhD in mechanical engineering in May of 2020. He is currently working as a assistant professor at California State University, Los Angeles branch. So tell me, Mario, how are you doing? Good, thanks for having me. Um, it's been good. We just got back from spring break and uh, it was a nice spring break, it was restful. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing good overall. Thanks for no, that's, How about you? That's wonderful to hear. Um, here at the university, we're approaching the final projects, final, um, final exams as well. So it's starting to get busy over here. But I'm glad to be on the call with you. Awesome. Uh, where are you calling from, by the way? I currently live in uh, Alhambra, um, California, which is a suburb. Uh, east of Los Angeles. Um, it's right next to the school and the school's located eastmost of Los Angeles. Yeah, okay. So, so, so the pinpoint here is basically I'm in LA. Yeah. No, that's that's nice to hear. I bet you're enjoying of some great weather over there. Yeah. Yeah. Relative to you all. Yes. Yeah. No, well, I'm glad that you were able to join us. And I guess to get the podcast episode started, I'd like to ask you a little bit about what your journey was. Um, overall, how did you start realizing that you wanted to pursue a PhD and what got, got you on that journey? Yeah. Yeah, so, so we started talking before about this. And I think if I just shared my story, we'd be able to talk a lot about the journey to the PhD. Um, and it really started, I think, with, uh, my interest in how things work from a fundamental perspective. Um, I was one of those annoying students, I think, um, that always asked the question why. So I was always, I was wanting to know how things worked and, and why they worked that way. And I wanted to keep asking the question why until everything made sense. And I had to understand from different viewpoints and different sides. So I would tackle a problem from multiple. I would I would sit there as an undergrad and try a problem seven different ways until it made sense to me. So, so similarly, when I was uh, in undergrad at Bradley University, I was doing a senior design project um, that was with a company, uh, Caterpillar. If those folks are familiar with Caterpillar, they're a, they're a heavy machinery company that make uh, um, generators and, and large machinery. Uh, tractors and such. So, um, they had a research and development team, and they were they have a problem. They had a problem with like a gas air getting into their oil, and so that would cause cavitation bubbles and then damage some of their equipment. So, in any case, they wanted a solution for that, and and our goal for that project was just to make a device. It was make a device, manufacture it. Right? As as a mechanical engineer, your, your goal is to design and fabricate uh, a piece of equipment, and so that was. That was our goal, and so that's what we did. 
And there was a team of five of us or six of us. And when we finished, you know, we had some time. We finished our time and we finished like in, they say, April or early or late March. So we, we made our design. We, we ran one test and it worked. It worked based on our hypothesis that we came up with. Oh, we're done. Um, but I, I was curious and I, and I wanted to dive deeper into the, and gather data and understand and then analyze that data. And I wanted to go further. So I wanted to go along the other steps of the engineering design process, which is like gather data, test, uh, and interpret data, and then I'll put some results. Uh, but my team wasn't concerned with that because, because we were just tasked with making a device. And so as, as, as they saw it, they're like, well, we're done. We're going to graduate already. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, we're still going to graduate, but, but we have more things that we could do and, Things that I don't know, we get more information and we could share with our, with the colleagues at Caterpillar. I think it'd be more interesting, and none of them were interested. And so, and so that that desire, doing go going the extra step to figure out this the answer, I think is what really convinced me to continue. Um, so this was this was in March. Uh, so this was before the application cycle, right? So I think for most folks who are familiar, the application cycle is like. You kind of started in September and you have to submit it by December. And so that cycle had already passed for me. Luckily, my advisor for that senior design project, he knew the type of student I was. And so he saw that and he intentionally put me on this team. So I, did have, I had a lot of help from him that I didn't know he was helping me. I later found out that the liaison, our contact person from Caterpillar was his daughter. So his daughter was in this team and he said, hey, this is gonna be a good student. We'll put him with you and we'll see where this happens. And so while this first semester, September to October is happening, I'm doing research, reading about cavitation. I had no idea what that was. Um, he was trying to convince me to apply to a, P, a master's program or a graduate school. He called it graduate school and I had no idea what that was. So I didn't know that there was more school after school. Um, and that's the way my parents understood it. And I was like, you know, I'm gonna apply to graduate school. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're done. So so he's like, apply to graduate school. And then I had no idea what it was. And so I started, you know, with the time I had, I, I put it together an application and I shot it off to three schools, uh, Berkeley, University of Michigan, and then U of I for a master's program in mechanical engineering. Um, not knowing the difference that that they existed between a master's and a PhD program. I was completely naive of that whole that whole world. So I just applied and I said, well, I'll see what happens if I get in. I, I mean, I'm looking for a job is really what I was thinking then in September. Um, so so fast forward, I we get this project. I'm talking to my advisor, the time goes on and he's like, you're really gonna be a good fit for graduate school, I think you should, did you apply? And I was like, yeah, I applied to three schools. I applied to master's programs. And he's like, why'd you do that? And I was like, I don't know the difference. And so then he, he's like, you should do research. I think you'd be a great fit for research and you don't do that much research as a master's student. He's like, find a way to get to the PhD program. And this is when he kind of stepped up and gave me a little more advice. And he said, this is what you'll do. Go to, go to these schools on your own, send emails to these faculty members, go on a Thursday, go on a, go on a Friday and, and just drive up to the schools and talk to faculty about research and tell them you're interested in research. Tell them you're a master's student and tell them you want to get paid and you want to do some work. And then, and his biggest thing was, you know, don't be shy about asking for money. He said, you're about to, you're, you want to engage in this journey uh, and you should be paid for it. And so, so I took his advice and I contacted both Berkeley. I didn't get into U of I, 
sadly, and that was my top choice if, if I were to go. So then I, I got into Michigan and I got into Berkeley and I went to both those schools. I shot emails to a bunch of folks and I said, hey, I'm coming to campus um, on my own. Uh, so there's like no coordinated visits. This is just some mm -hmm. random Thursday in the semester and a student from not even the school shows up. So if I'm knocking on doors, asking for money, asking for research opportunities, asking for people who would be, be willing to talk to me um, in this regard. And so, so I go around Berkeley and, and there's a lot of doors closed there. I didn't get much talks. Um, I met some graduate students. I, it seemed expensive. I was able to, I was just by asking, I, I went to some graduate coordinators. I went to some folks who work in the graduate office and said, hey, you know, I want to come. I want to do research. I applied to the master's student. I want to know what the program or if there's a program that exists to transition from a master's student to a PhD. What does that look like? Can I get paid as a master's student? Like these questions I didn't know. Uh, I found out, right? You don't get paid as a master's student. Um, most often we don't. It's very, very rare. Uh, there are a few students that happens, but very rare. And so I was trying to figure out how to transition from a master's to a, to a PhD. And so, so Berkeley was like, okay, at the end of the tour, at the end of my, my one day exhaustive tour, uh, they're like, okay, well, we found you 20K. And I looked at the numbers, right? Berkeley on its own tuition for one year program is 40K. Living expenses, you know, in that part of the world is easily 20k a year, and and maybe more. Um, and so, so I was looking at a 50k loan, uh, offset by a 20k grant, if you will, and I was still going to be in debt 40k, and I didn't want to add more debt to my undergrad debt. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go talk to Michigan folks. I have a visit with them in a couple weeks. I'm going to let you know what I think about those 20k. Um, so, so I mean, there's a longer story there, but you can keep it if you want it, but um, I can skip it for now. Then I go to Michigan, I do the same thing. I shoot emails to the faculty, I shoot emails to the graduate coordinators, to the chairs, to everybody who would respond. And keep in mind, as a faculty now, that sounds like really annoying. So you get emails from people, you're like, oh man, I, I want to help you, but time is so... So I'm really grateful for those folks who did respond. Uh, and that's how I eventually found the people that I, I ended up doing my PhD with. So, so I went to Michigan and I met with uh, a few folks who did respond. And most of them, the first thing they say, I mean, and they know, and it makes sense. They know they're like, oh, we, we don't have money. And so I'm like, okay, well, I want to talk about research, right? That was my, I'm interested in, I'm trying to justify if I should go do a master's, go do a PhD versus going to industry. So at this point, I'm visiting with, with this in mind that I don't have to go to school again. I can just go get a job and make, you know, make some decent money. Um, and I'm trying to find a reason not to do that. Um, so I'm really trying to trying to find a good reason to do that. And so I'm trying to find money and that would be a good reason. So I'm talking to folks and they're like, yeah, well, you know, research, it's whatever you want it to be, blah, blah, blah. Well, we don't have any money. And so eventually I found one, one advisor um, who approached me in a very different, with a different question that, that you that I noticed an immediate difference between her and any other faculty member that I talked to, and her, and her question was said, "Look, let's put that all aside. What is your goal? Say in five years, where do you want to be?" And I didn't, wasn't expecting that question. I was expecting to talk more about research. I was expecting to get the, the money question, but her question was like, "I, you know, let's say I can fund you, right? Let's just suppose. How? What do you want to do in five years?" And I didn't know that answer, and so. I was like, I honestly don't know. I I wanted to research. 
I'm interested in it. I told the story of me as an undergraduate with uh, the Caterpillar Project. And I was like, I found that really exciting. Um, I didn't, you know, we didn't get many answers out of that. And I'd like to keep going on something like that, you know? So she said, okay, well, um, let's, I was like, I, so at that moment, I was accepted as a master's student only. So she's like, I, I'll agree to supervise you for the first year uh, under my wing as a master's student. And then we can, then we can figure it out. If you like it, um, I'll agree to pay for the rest four years and we can transition through the PhD program. And if you don't like it, um, then you could just, you know, finish your master's and do what you want. And so, and so that uh, allowed me to say, okay, well, I have an avenue here with a person that is very willing to be, is very supportive of, of my journey. So, so let me, let me see where I can go with this. And so then I went to talk to the graduate chair and um, at the time there was an unofficial that is now an official at Michigan. Um, so this is for the Michigan audience is an official bridge program that goes from a master's to the PhD. Um, I think there's an application for it, but when I joined, I was basically the first cohort uh, of, un, of an unofficial program. It, it didn't yet exist. And so it only existed because I asked for it. Um, so I asked the graduate chair and I said, Hey, I want to come, I want to come here. I'm a master's student, but I want to come here to the PhD program. I found an advisor who's willing to kind of supervise me for the first year. Is there any way you can help me, you know, with the cost of the first year? And, you know, being a, a Mexican-American, um, they they said, yeah, we can help you. We have funds. Uh, the Rack America Fellowship uh, is what they helped me find. And they gave me, that first year, they gave me the ME Block Grant. So the ME department has, you know, um, discretionary funds, if you will, and so they can distribute how they will. And so they, they were able to support me the first year, and they were able to help me get the RMF fellowship uh, that's part of Rackham um, there at University of Michigan. And that helped me get funding for four years. And my advisor only funded me the last year. And so I, she helped me kind of get that funding because the requirement was that I needed an advisor for me to get this money. And I didn't have an advisor because I wasn't a PhD student, but this person, her name is Margaret Woldridge, um, she was willing and supportive to say, yeah, I'll supervise you for a year. You know, you, you know, I'll teach you the basics of research. You'll take your classes um, and you do a little bit of research. I'll keep an eye on you and then we'll see where, we, where you were at. How do you like it? Did you want to stay here? Do you like Michigan? Do you like the research? So on and so forth. So, yeah, I spent the first year. Um, at Michigan, and by March of that first year, they're like, hey, so do you want to continue, yes or no? And it was tough because the first year I felt like dropping out numerous times. I was in the library studying Friday nights, and I, the, the question always came to me, and I'm like, it's Friday, it's 11, I could, I could be going out with friends and, and you know, having, having way more fun and making a lot more money. I said, I'm in a library struggling and like questioning the choices I've made so far. Um, but that was, that's an adjustment period. Honestly, I think there's a huge adjustment period between undergraduate and graduate. That's one like big shock. And the second is that I, I, moved, I moved away again. Second big shock. And the third big shock is it's, it's a different school. So the expectations are way different. From a, from a Bradley to the University of Michigan, the expectations are different. And so my advisor, she mentioned that and I was naive and said, oh, I'll be fine not realizing that those three big shocks were going to come and they did. And so after the first semester, things kind of settled out. So I was like, I'm still iffy. So in March, I was like, man, I struggled. This semester's going better. 
And she said, the summer, you have nothing but time to do research. So the first year is a lot of classes. You're kind of trying to do a little bit of research, a little bit of classes. And so your time is very divided and you're trying to get adjusted. So you're kind of, you're kind of spread thin that first year. So she said, by the summer, you don't have any classes. You have three months of solid research time. She said, she said, stay, stay and you'll like it. And like you, cause I was already making progress and she was seeing that. And so she was also convinced that like, if you stayed and you gave it an honest chance, you'd see it. You, you, and so, and so I did, I stayed and that summer was, all, it was beautiful. That's that summer I got to do research. I got to enjoy Ann Arbor in the summer, which is a really great place to be. Um, for those folks who've had a chance, it's honestly a wonderful place. And yeah, I got to do research and I was fully convinced. I, I said, yes, I was like, I'll take the PhD program. So they signed me up for four years. That summer went well, hopefully for me, or you know, luckily it went well. And yeah, so, so then I stayed for the PhD. Oh, that's a, it sounds like your journey was full of a lot of ups and downs, ups and downs, but it sounds yeah. very beautiful. I guess while you were telling me about your journey, I had a couple of questions that came to mind. The first one was, so you started with a master's degree. I've heard that at, I don't know if it's everywhere, but at least at the University of Michigan, you can go for a course-based or a research-based master's degree. Was yours, um, which one was yours? Yeah, so mine was the research track. Okay. Um, it was, so when I applied, it was purely the, the course track. So that was my application. But again, I was naive. I, I didn't know. And so I just applied for a master's program. And with the intention that it was just courses, that's the knowledge I had. I was like, oh, you just mm -hmm. take classes. I don't know. Um, my suggestion, though, having gone through the whole journey, now being an advisor, being a faculty member, um, if folks really want to get engaged in research, the master's thesis is not a bad option, but it has the pros and it has its cons, okay? The, the pros are that it's a shorter project. You could finish it in two, three years, right? Total timeline, including courses. Um, two years is really tight. Three years is more realistic. Um, it's typically not funded, so that's a con, um, but it's shorter. And so those are pretty much the pros and the cons, right? So you still get to the research, you don't have you need to pay for it, uh, but it's not as long. And so you can you can still get your, your master's degree, which is what you're signing up for anyway, and then get an extra experience by doing research. So, so that's kind of how you balance it. Uh, the coursework only as an advisor, I don't suggest it unless someone's paying for it. Say a company, say you, you're working with a company, you want to you continue your education, you want to become an expert in a specific topic. If you can get a company to pay for it and say, hey, you know, pay for your master's, then go do it. If, if you're considering doing a master's uh, because you're, having, you're struggling finding a job, you're still uncertain of what specialty you want to do, uh, I wouldn't recommend a master's then. Um, only because it's an expensive degree. Uh, and and from an individual standpoint, you, you do learn a lot, um, but you're gonna learn as much as effort you put in. So so with an undergraduate degree, you can you can start to perfect your craft uh, with a job, or you can perfect your craft outside of that and make, you know, make um, build your build your portfolio that way without having to do an expensive master's degree. That's how I see it. Okay. Perfect. And then you also mentioned that you had a top school in mind at first when you were applying. 
what were you considering that made that your top school or that allowed you to have pros and cons for different schools? Yeah, good questions. Um, so I didn't know any of this. So I'm not going to answer from the perspective of me then because I, was, I didn't know. I okay. only applied, my top school was U of I. And the only reason was because I wanted to go to that school as an undergrad. Um, and so, and so, and it was close to home. I'm from Chicago, U of I is two hours away. I said, I'll be close to family. And so that was, that was purely the reason uh, why. And, and, but from, from now as again, as having gone through the whole thing, my top recommendations are a few. Um, so one is, I mean, there's a few. So, so one is money, right? Can you get support in any way, financial support? Because honestly, these, again, these degrees are not, not trivial. So, so can you get financial support? Okay. Uh, if you're going to do research, one other huge one is advisors. Is your advisor a person, a human that's going to see you as a human rather than as a work machine, right? So having a healthy relationship with your advisor. Um, location to family. I think that's a huge one, especially for people in our culture. We we are, we have huge families. We tend to be very close knit to our families, and so being away from them sometimes hurts. Um, so it depends how you value that. Um, what else? Topics that are in your area of interest, uh, which kind of aligns with the advisor, but it's a little separate at times. So, are you interested in aerospace? You know, LA SoCal region is a great. It, the, there's a huge market of aerospace. Um, engineers out here, and this would be a great place to come. Or are you interested in the automotive industry? That, that's for Michigan to go to, right? Um, so there are sectors, uh, and that'd be a good thing to, to look for and what sector you can get the best and what sector has the most connections, right? So the, the, other, the key word here is the connection. So if you're going to go to UCLA, for example, um, all right, well, you have a lot of connections to the aerospace industry. Does your advisor have those types of connections that can help you get a job in those areas or the areas that you want to work in at the end, um, which is a lot to balance. So, so it's like these major life choices that you have to make. Uh, and there's a lot of factors to consider. And I think for each individual, you have to prioritize what those look like. Um, the more you know, the more information, the better decision you can make. Um, and, and, you know, if you could avoid what I did and just said, hey, it's close to my family. So then it was it was just that factor, which is not a bad one. But, you know, I didn't consider all these other factors that are important. And, and for some folks, weather is a huge one, too. Um, I've heard that many a times at Michigan, folks who come from Texas and folks who come from California, they struggle with the winter at Michigan. So, so that's a big deciding factor as well. And just to double check. So. You transitioned from your master's degree to your PhD being at the University of Michigan. So at any point, did you consider applying to other PhD programs or did you just decide to stick with the University of Michigan? Also, considering that you did have your advisor here already. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't. Um, the reason why I didn't was because of that, that deal I struck, if you will, at the very beginning where I said, if I stay here for a year and they pay me, I'll make the commitment to stay for the PhD. Um, so it was an exclusive deal for me to stay at Michigan. Um, and I also like my advisor. Uh, that was a huge deal that I found out within the first year that you know some folks don't love their advisor. Uh, they struggle with them and it's like a constant fight with, with the person for five years. And, and you imagine it's like a, 
you know, you're you're basically bound to this person for five five x plus years, and and they can make your life a living hell. And so my advisor was not that. Uh, I had nothing but good things to say about her. So so once I once I understood that, I was like, yeah, sign me up. I'm I'm I'll be here. That's fine. Okay. Okay. And do you know, like, if of any of your classmates? I'm just curious, um, because I have heard that when you apply to PhD programs, uh, sometimes schools will fly you in so that you can visit them. Some, uh, I've heard from current like seniors right now, uh, that some of them do look for a specific, uh professor that they can work with at a university and that can sometimes be a deciding factor how common do you think that is and how wise do you think that is to find the common factor with your advisor or to well like um how much of a factor do you think it could or should be or typically is um, mm -hmm. for a student applying to decide based on like their experiences flying in and like maybe just a specific professor they know like if they know yeah. ah, i know this professor works here and that's why yeah 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 yeah. okay good question so i'm going to answer the professor part first and mm -hmm. the visit next the, the the professor part that one's hard to tell because on email you know on paper and in the visit day they can present themselves a certain way and say, yeah we, this looks good right it's an interview it's a first, first impression and then you go and, and then they want you to do a hundred million things and you go, whoa, this is not what I thought who you were or what I was signing up for. That happens a lot. The best way to find that out is once you've once you interview with the with the lab, most professors have web pages. In those web pages, they publish their current lab students, of which you can email. And students are a lot easier to get a hold of and a lot less intimidating than a faculty is. And they're often they're more truthful. And so you can ask them a, a sincere question and say, hey, what are your thoughts on your current advisor? Do you like them? Do you generally like them? Um, so on and so forth. The other things that you could do when you interview is ask them these type of questions uh, that them directly and say, hey, you know, what kind of advisor are you? Are you a micromanager? Are you more of a hands-off? You come in once a semester? We meet once a month? We meet twice a week? Like, what's the frequency of meeting? And, and how active are you as an advisor? Because I, I've, I've heard it on and see it. Some folks don't see their advisor for a year. And some folks don't, like their advisor disappears for three months and then they haven't heard of them and they don't meet and they're kind of lost. And some advisors, they jump in and they check you what time you're coming into the office and what time you're leaving. Um, so it depends how you like to work. And so from an individual perspective, um, you have to navigate. Do you want to be micromanaged? Some folks want the extra aid. I mean, I wouldn't call it micromanaging then, but I'd call it extra support. And so some folks want more direction. Some folks want that extra support. Uh, and some folks want not to be bothered and say, hey, give me a week, give me three months, give me whatever I need so that I can get, I, I know what I'm doing, let me let me do it. Um, so it depends on how your work style is, um, which you don't always know, right? But I think trying to establish that communication with that advisor early on and say, hey, this is how I want to try to work this. Um, give me some time, and if you don't, ask more questions, right? So uh, it just depends on, on how, and I think the best thing you could do is have them try to have an open dialogue with them, and if you notice that they're not being truthful with you, or they're not having that same open dialogue with you, then that might be a red flag. Um, and if they're not giving you, you know, the kind of response that you wanted. Um, 
So that's that's one thing, or the graduate students is another. Uh, regarding the visit, when you visit, you're visiting the school and not the person. So I would look at that from a school's perspective. I would look at the vibe. I would look at, you know, what kind of things they have on campus. What does the housing look like? How far is how far will you have to live? Do they have a bus system? Um, do they have the restaurants and the bars and the liveliness that you want? Are you more of a rural person? Are you do you want more of that urban feel? Um, you visit the place. Is a student body the student body you, you can interact with? You know, you're going to meet some PhD students. You're going to meet some prospective students. Are these the type of people that you know you're going to vibe with? Are are they generally nice people? Um, and that's what you're looking for when you visit. You're going to see the program. You're going to meet other folks, and it's kind of kind of geared geared towards the school. But you want to be looking for these indicators about the style of life that you're going to have there. Uh, because you're gonna be, if you're gonna do the PhD, you're making a commitment for five years, and you want to know that okay, I, I can I can do this for five years. You want to be comfortable with that choice. Okay, that's perfect. And another question I had was, what did you prepare when you were planning on visiting the schools? Mm. What kind of questions for the work. professors and yeah. just general general preparation you took? Yeah, yeah, no, that one is a lot of work on the individual. Um, but my general advice there is you want to have a theme of things you're interested in, the topics you're interested in. For me, it was thermal fluid science. So I, I really enjoy fluid mechanics, thermodynamics, heat transfer. Um, so I, I enjoy this area. And so I basically, that's where I started my search. Uh, because within mechanical engineering, you have robotics, you have control, you have uh, solid mechanics. You have manufacturing, you have a whole umbrella of things, right? And so I down-selected the thermal fluid sciences. And from there, I found the faculties that did that kind of research. I thought I found all the fluids professors. I found all the heat transfer professors. I found all the, all the thermodynamic professors. And I saw what kind of work they did. So I went to their web pages, and I saw the latest publications. I would read an abstract. I read an abstract or two, so you get an idea of the type of work they're doing. This is like what they're doing day to day. Um, so you read an abstract or two, you say, okay, well, they're doing some sort of investigation that involves fuel uh, or some sort of investigation that involves cavitation bubbles, whatever. And you say, okay, what's well, fluid mechanics related? This is the stuff I'm interested in. Uh, of course, a lot of it is going to sound very foreign to, to folks who haven't specialized in it, right? So it's going to be like, man, these aren't hard to read. And that's true. They're, they are hard to read at the beginning. Um, but you become better at it. So, so you kind of start looking at those things. You read a paper or two. You kind of look at all the professors. Um, and then when you get to meet them, that's another filter that you can add on. So it, it kind of helps you build an image of them. And then you can ask their students and then help them fill in more information around what they do, who they are, and how they are. Um, so that's what I would recommend uh, on top of asking them directly, their students, look at their, their, their projects that you could probably find on their web page and the publications that they have, because that's directly tied to the projects that they're doing. Okay. And what about clothing attire when you were visiting them? I went in a t-shirt and jeans. Okay. Um, I mean, again, I went on my own, but I think the common, the common like uh, accepted is like formal or business formal. Um, so when you go visit, I think they tell you, so when they invite you over, they're like, oh, you just like the attire. And I think it's usually business formal. Okay. Yes. And okay. So yeah, I don't recommend just... jeans and a t-shirt because you you <laughs> see like you come out of left field and folks are confused. 
So at least business casual is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And another question I have is, so it sounds like a huge factor in you being able to like have successful conversations with uh, the professors and also in, I guess, getting to the point in which you're at, a big factor was the research you had done with Caterpillar and mm -hmm. also like in your courses. Um, how much of a factor do you think it is, I guess, your GPA, um, having done research versus if you hadn't done any research but had just internships or yeah. a good mixture of those? Um, well, I would say that the application to the PhD, PhD program is holistic. Uh, in the sense that there are things that you're right, you have to make a few statements, you got to write a cover letter, you got to get some other recommendations, you got to pass the SAT, ACT, and you got to have a good GPA, right? So there's like five filters. Um, it is true that that they do kind of group you in, in categories where you say, okay, here are all my 4.0 GPAs, here are all my 3.5s, here are all my threes, right? And then from there, they kind of go down the path. And it's the fours, look at the resumes, the cover letters, the undergrads. And so that's kind of how they break it down to my understanding. I've never been part of a search committee, so do take that with a grain of salt. But this is from what I've heard from other faculty who, who have been on these committees. Um, so they break it down uh, kind of by some score, some metric that it's easier. I mean, you, you're talking thousands of applications, so how do you dial, how do you down select 100 students from you know 10,000 applications? So mm -hmm. they use a number that typically is the GPA or the ACT score, and they say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna look at the top the top ones first, and then we're gonna look at our second pile and then go through that. Um, but they do consider all of them, and so and so they they do look at your letter rack because they'll, they'll look at some three point. I had a three point four GPA, I think, at Bradley. Um, and so, and so I, I was afraid I wasn't going to get into the master's program and I didn't get into the U of I one. So, so um, they, they, uh, they do look at the whole thing completely. They do look at your letters of recommendation and what they're trying to figure out is how self-motivated are you a self-starter? Um, and they really want folks who can carry on the work on their own. Um, so they want, they want to be able to hire somebody and say, okay, and this kind of applies to jobs too. I mean, so, so take this and, and think about it from that perspective. They want to be able to hire somebody to say, I don't have to teach you. I don't have to coach you for a year, right? I can coach you for a month. That's okay. I'm okay with that. I can right. coach you for three months. I'm okay with that. But if I have to coach you for a year, two years, then I've wasted my time, right? Um, and so nobody wants that. And so if, if they're like, okay, well, you're going to come into this position. You don't know anything about cavitation. Let me let me give you some papers, right? Um, let me give you four or five papers. I'm gonna that's your homework. Go read it. Tell me what you know, right? And so if you come back and you say, yeah, I didn't understand anything, then I have to teach you everything. That's where it gets a little hard. But if you go, okay, well, I read these papers. This is what I understand. This is my summary. These are the questions I have, right? And um, this is what I understand. And if you kind of come with, from that perspective, like, oh, okay, cool. Now we can work. We can, I can teach you. I can still teach you. But you're you're actively working on your own to understand me, um, and I don't have to start from scratch to explain cavitation. Instead, you read it already. So that's that's I think what they're looking for. And so a lot of projects that you can speak to in your cover letters and your statements, um, you can use from your undergraduate experience from like class projects. Say, hey, I had a project. Um, I assign projects in my class all the time where. You know, you have, uh, I'm teaching a propulsion class right now, and students have to um, read some literature and come up with uh, uh, a qualitative analysis, right? 
And so mm -hmm. you can use that in your resume for both jobs and um, uh, graduate school. Say, hey, I was given this task. I picked this topic. I read these papers. This is what I understood. This is the report I wrote. Um, and this is what I learned, right? And so, and so if you can write that and package it and say, this is, this is who I am and this is how I learn, or this is how, what, I, you know, what I'm learning and how I use my time, then I'm more interested in a candidate like that. Because I say, okay, well, I don't have to teach him, right? Like I can give him a new problem and I'm confident that he'll, that this person will learn it mostly on their own. They can learn 60% of it or 50% of it. I'll teach them you know, another 20% and they'll learn another 30% and then we're at 100 and we're good. But if I have to go from zero to 100, by me teaching you everything, yeah. then then we, we struggle. Okay. And yeah, that makes perfect sense. I guess um, some other questions I have are, what were some of the main concerns you had before actually starting graduate school? Because it was all kind of sudden. I'm, mm -hmm. it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. My and how did you manage them? Sorry. No, no, what's your second question? Oh, and how did you manage those concerns, basically? Yeah, yeah, I think my, my, my major concern was was I, I think it was the, what they call the imposter syndrome. So I, I think I was struggling with whether or not I knew enough, uh, was ready enough, um, was the right person in graduate school. Um, did I fit the profile that people thought I, who I was? And that's, that's the, the dilemma I had in the library when I wanted to drop out. I was like, this is not for me. I'm not who they think I am. I like I told them that I was interested in, in PT, like in research, but I don't know what that is. I don't know what I'm doing. And so, and so I think most of that came from fear of failure, of saying, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna fail at this, and then I'm gonna regret it, and then I and then I and then I'm gonna just I'm a fraud, right? So so that's what I was afraid of. And so that was my my major concern, not being good enough. But from the other perspective of, of what I just finished saying about trying is is I didn't give up. I said, okay, well, let's assume I don't know anything. Let's assume I'm, I'm dumb. Let's assume that I didn't learn anything in undergrad. I'm going to learn it now. I have to. Because as an individual, I pride myself in knowing things. I, and I, I pride myself that like, I spend time learning and I have something to show, right? It's like making products. It's like you spend time, you make something, and you have something to show for it. And so that's what I, I didn't want to leave with with saying, oh, I couldn't do it because I have anything to show for it. I didn't try. And so and so I wanted to to try my hardest that I could say, okay, I'm gonna I, I know I can do it. I'm gonna hit my head against the wall a few times. But um, I have a lot of help too, right? So I have colleagues, I have classmates, I have my advisor. Um, so I try to lean on people that have gone through it before because I, I was looking around and I saw people happy. So I was like, okay, I, this isn't a me problem. I mean, it's a me problem. Um, let me figure out how I can use others or how others can help me understand so that I can I can get out of this kind of rut I was in. So so I did that. I leaned on folks. I talked to my advisor, said, hey, I'm struggling. Um, and she helped me. She said, okay, don't do research for the next month. Just go read your textbooks. And so that's what I did. And, and you know, as a, as a full-time student, I have nothing else to do but but read textbooks. So I did that. Um, I, I I did a bunch of study hours with my friends who were a lot better at the material than I was. And I would sit with them and say, hey, can I'm in the library. Can you, whenever you got time and you don't even come do homework, I'm, I'm sitting here. And if you don't mind, come help me. Um, and so they would come and they would 
dedicate an hour with me. I'd, I'd work on a problem. I'd say, hey, this is what I did. Can you tell me what I'm wrong in? Or I'd go to the advisor or the, 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 the professor of the class and say, hey, you know, go to their office hours and say, hey, I'm struggling. And I'd, I'd ask for help. And so I think that was the biggest thing is, is being afraid that I couldn't make it and then realizing that and saying, Wait, what can I do? Because anybody can. Um, you just have to. You just have to be able to to have the fight and, and, and want to fight it. So. And how did you? How do you compare both? I guess the imposter syndrome, the stressors, and the motivation you used to surpass that mm. between your undergraduate, your master's degree, and then your PhD. How's how's the difference in environments? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So in undergrad, it was kind of funny. I was like. I mean, I wouldn't say I was the smartest person there. I didn't get the highest GPA. There's people way smarter than me there. But I was the one of the most disciplined. I, I could say that confidently. I would see my classmates. I was in the engineering building 24-7. I knew all the hidden rooms to study. And folks would, would when I would make study sessions, folks would say, how did you build this room? And it's like, I live here, man. So so, so I was a dedicated student. And so, and school kind of came easy to me then. I, I just did it because I liked school. I liked reading. Uh, but I was I didn't like reading growing up. I'd say that I didn't start like to like reading until undergrad. And I forced myself to read because I was like, this discipline requires me to read. So I'm gonna start reading. And I started with like fiction books. I started with like elementary high school books that I didn't read in high school because I I read the <laughs> version of it. So I was like, I'm gonna start reading fun books so that I can enjoy the you know the action of reading and then maybe I can read textbooks and maybe I can learn something there. So I would just go and, and instead of reading in my dorm, I'd read in the, in the in wherever I could. And, and so and so school from that perspective wasn't difficult. It was just time, and I and I, and I had it, so I did. Um, when I went to grad school, um, it was I felt that no matter how much time I put to read, I wasn't learning anything. And I, I felt I kind of hit a stagnation. And so that was. That was the biggest stressor that I was like, in undergrad, I could figure most of this out for myself. I read a textbook, figure it out, go home, you know, take a break, whatever. In grad school, I, I could read and read and read and read and read and just wouldn't get anywhere. I wouldn't understand it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't comprehend what I was doing. And so that's, again, I mean, I mean on those folks. Um, they can help explain it to me. Did I answer that question? Kind of, a little bit. <laughs> okay. You, you want me to ask it again? I think I missed the aspect of it. Um, I guess another question then is, so having research being such a big part or basically all of your graduate school experience, um, how would, what tips do you have so that people in that process can get better at either learning for themselves or getting through those research papers quicker and more efficiently? Yeah. Um. So one thing is to learn how to read papers. It's not trivial, um, but you know, you spend some time, you can do it. I think my biggest recommendation for that is you want to start with the easy stuff. So in my opinion, I think the easy stuff is the intro. Um, that explains the problem and why people are solving it, right? So you kind of focus there and you have an idea of like, why do I care about you know this equation, right? Because in the research, you're, you're, you, could be, you could be spending you know, all your time looking at data, you can spend all your time manufacturing something, you can spend all your time trying to derive an equation, and you kind of miss the whole big picture. So if you don't see the big picture, you can lose motivation really quickly. And so reading those abstracts, those intros, excuse me, K 
can help you see the big picture and say, oh, this is why I care about the problem. It's like, this is going to help X, Y, Z. Um, and then you don't read the entire paper most of the time. Read the figures. You look at the figures. You say, what is this figure saying? Um, and if you can dissect the figure, usually by the caption and the labels, you say, okay, I understand what's going on. And if you want more information, you go, you go find a paragraph in which they talk about the thing. And then you go to the end and you read the conclusion. And that's it. You can read that in an hour and you say, okay, I read one paper, read two papers, read three papers in a day. And then, you know, you get kind of better at that. If you try to read the whole paper and understand every paragraph, you're going to take a week to read the paper. Um, and that's not productive. The other thing is always ask questions. Go to the folks, go to your advisor. That's what they're there for. Go to your your lab mates that are there for, have been there for a while. They all have also have encountered very similar problems. Find the ones that are nice and are willing to help and say, hey, I read this. I'm confused here. Can you help me? Um, Do professors and, ever expect that you read the whole paper or would it ever depends. be like? Depends okay. what they want you to get out of it. So sometimes they give you the paper with the expectation that you read a very specific part, but they don't tell you, say, hey, read this. Because sometimes papers kind of, they're like, you have, an, you have a question. You say, hey, I, I want to know how this part, how the system works. And most papers will explain a methodology and they'll say, oh, this is what we use, this is how we test it, this is how we analyze. And you skip over that section because it's like, I'm gonna read the motivation, right? And the result. So you, you don't get the answer that you were looking for because you didn't look at the right place. And so some of that kind of takes, depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking to understand an effect and say, hmm, I wonder how you know changing air affects combustion. Well, you might wanna go read the graphs. If you say, I want to know how this person analyzed this image, right? I have an image of a spray and I want to know how, to, how, to, how they did that. Well, you go to the methodology. If you want to understand, hey, why is, this, why is this person focused on understanding the variability between these two things? Go to the motivation. And so it kind of depends on what you're seeking uh, that you may have to read. And so that kind of comes with practice. Um, and sometimes that information isn't on papers at all. And sometimes papers, not all papers are good. I've seen some papers that, you know, that don't contain anything useful. And so sometimes you'll see some very bad papers and you, you kind of have to go through those motions to figure out what's good, what isn't. Okay. I guess, could you share also a little bit more about like maybe what experiences you had while you were pursuing your PhD, maybe like in terms of um, assisting a like your advisor with a specific project or switching between projects of you had a specific interest in something else or maybe how you worked with other graduate students? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, switching between projects can kind of happen ad hoc, depending on, depending on the funding. So advisors are always applying to, to different projects to get different funding. And so sometimes you're working on something for a couple of months and then all of a sudden like, hey, we've got this, you know, this company contacted me or I applied for this grant and we got it. Let's, let's shift all our focus to this thing. And so you're like, wait, I was just, I was working on this thing and I finished it, I don't even know what's wrong with it, and now you want me to drop it? Uh, that can be kind of hard to adjust to, especially if it happens often. For some folks, it does. Again, you, you, you can kind of figure that out with your advisor. My advisor was well-established, so she kind of knew the trajectory of how a student could go from project to project. Um, she put me on a project at the very beginning with a small company who had some, they wanted to figure out something about their investors and so she said hey here's your chamber go go image up and so i i messed around for six months to figure out how they look and when i got an answer i went back to the company i said here you go 
but my advisor did a good job of protecting me and saying, hey, it's going to take me, it's going to take him six months, okay? So, so don't expect anything. Don't bug us until we're ready to tell you. And so my advisor, who has been, you know, doing this for a while, understood that. And so she was able to protect me. So that's where the advisors really help. Some advisors don't know how to say no either. And so they'll just take on more work and they'll just give it to their grad students. Say, hey, I have more stuff for you to do. Um, and that's never good because, you, again, you're just more projects and several more projects. How do you balance that? Um, so from, from that perspective, you got to be able to say, if, if that's happening, you got to be able to say, hey, uh, come, you know, I, I've got two things. I'm working on these two things. I'm really interested in these two things. Um, this is what I want to dedicate my time to. Or you can have a conversation where it's like, okay, well, what's going to be the topic in the conversation of my thesis? Um, and then you can focus your projects on that topic. There's sometimes the option where your advisor is just looking for money and it's like, well, this is where the money is. So this is what we're going to do the research on. And that's all sometimes the sad truth that, you know, it just depends who has money and where the money is located and what topics. And that's what you're, you're, you'll do your research on. Um, and so it just kind of depends how you can, how you or your advisor can help you navigate those those projects. Okay. That's, oh. yeah, I can imagine how stressful it might be if they do suddenly switch the projects on you and yeah. you are building up so much research with it. Yeah, but what I would say is is don't forget that you are learning something in the process of that first project. Whether it seemed trivial to you, you said, I just hooked up this thing to this thing, right? You're like, okay, but you learned something there. You might have learned the type of fitting that you use. You might have learned the application. You might have found out a company that specializes in this area. You might have found out some information. And that is something that you can take with you forever, right? And so then later on, you come to a similar problem. You say, hey, it just, and you could reference your notes. You can remember. You can look at whatever information that was that you were using then um, to help you recall that type of stuff. And so don't forget that anything you engage in is a learning process. You are learning something from it. Now, it is stressful, let's... Mm -hmm. but from the grand picture, it's like you're there to learn and take that with you. You know, take that mentality that like we're learning. Okay, yeah, and well, I guess let's say you had a negative experience, or maybe maybe you were put on a project and it wasn't one that you have no interest in. Um, like you just you're not passionate yeah. about that project. Do you think it would be possible to speak with your professor that your your advisor and maybe switch onto a different project? That happens again, depending on advisors, but I've I've seen it happen. Folks say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling with this. I actually don't find it interesting. Can I pivot? Um, and advisors, depending on, you know, again, funding projects, they'll, they'll, they'll try to pivot you. You say, okay, well, this person is about to graduate. You know, they, they can, they, they usually are the ones who can identify the big picture problems in their lab. So they'll say, okay, well, this person is about to graduate in a year and they're finishing up. Maybe you can shadow them and see if you like their work. Okay. My advisor suggested that to me a few times because I tried to get off a project once. And it was mostly because I didn't like a person in that project. And, and I didn't want to work with them. So I said, hey, I don't like this. And I actually did. I just, I just didn't want to work with that person. I didn't know how to say that. So I'm like, I don't like this. Can I work on something else? So then she's like, okay, we'll go shadow this other person um, and see if you like that topic. And then I did. And so she's like, okay, go we'll shadow this other guy. And so I was kind of shadowing my other lab members, watching their day to day, asking them questions as I learned about their work. And so um, I ultimately went back to the work that I was doing because that's what I was really interested in. Um, but I was able to learn something through that process of 
putting my work down and looking at the other folks and understanding what my lab did as a whole or what her lab did as a whole. It's like, okay, well, we'll work on all sorts of combustion type problems. And that was interesting and a learning experience. You could do that. Some advisors won't let you, depending on projects and deadlines and such. Um, and sometimes you gotta you gotta kind of write it out and say, okay, well, I'm I'm gonna make try to make the best out of the situation. I'm gonna try to learn something, um, and hopefully you do learn something out of it. Um, and if you can, if you really are struggling with like the fundamental concepts of it, and say, hey, I just don't understand this. Like, this is not what I specialized in. This is not what I wanted to dedicate my time to. And I actually don't understand the the fundamentals here. Um, you can have that conversation. It won't look too great, uh, depending on how they see it, depending on how they see you in that relationship. But it honestly could save you too. So they're like, okay, well, my, you know, I didn't know you didn't know this. Like maybe we could put you on something different, or maybe we can look at it from a different perspective, or maybe I can help you. Um, and that just depends on how that person is. And that's not always it's not always easy, but but you can always try. Okay. And in worst case, in worst case scenarios, you can always ask or talk to. Um, other advisors, there's, I mean, the whole university is filled with faculty. And if you have a nice relationship with someone who's like, say you're taking a class and you like that person, you can go talk to them and say, Hey, you know, I'm working with this person. I'm struggling here. You know, can you give me some, any, any insights? And so talk to other people, other, other professors are a great tool. You know, if they have time and they're willing to talk to you, they're great people to talk to. They know their colleagues. That's, that's their colleague. And so they know how they work. They know how they are. They can probably go talk to them for you if you don't feel comfortable telling them yourself. You say, hey, I have this advisor. I'm not having the greatest relationship. You know, I don't know how to step in. And or you could ask the graduate coordinator, the, the chair of the department. Those folks are usually there for that, too. Um, and they'll help you kind of, you know, if they want to keep you, they'll probably help you try to pivot out of that group into a different group. Um, it happens. Maybe not, you know, always. Maybe the advisor, the one you were working with, and you want to get off the project. Maybe they'll hire you for life. Uh, but honestly, if it's for your sanity, you know, you try to pursue that as much as you can. And those are, there are avenues, they're not trivial, but you can ask other faculty members, other chair members, um, and they can probably help you figure something out. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I guess, since you mentioned that you did do some shadowing throughout that process, um, I have a couple, a question that comes to mind. Over the summer, I was a research assistant at the human AI lab here, and Basically, I was with an assistant professor coordinating various graduate students, mostly were PhD students. And yeah. I guess the first question I have is, in my experience, there would be like weekly hackathons where it's like everyone would get together just to work together on their individual projects. Um, they were various different projects at the same time. Did you would you say you ever experienced a similar thing where like everyone would work together? I'm only wondering because you had you shadowed people, so I'm not sure yeah. if you just didn't know of people's projects until then. No, I mean, I think we'd always work together. So everybody worked on their own, right? Everybody had their own project, everybody had their own desktop. We all shared an office, though. So we, you know, whenever okay. someone was in, you'd, you'd see them. So so whenever you wanted a break, you'd like, you're struggling with something, you can, I always, my, my lab me, my lab, my lab always had a good energy where we could just turn around and say, hey, I have a question for the group. Or I have a question for said person mm -hmm. or someone else. You can kind of go up to them and say, hey, I have a question. I'm struggling with this. Can you understand it? And my group was always like willing to put their work down, put their work to the side for us to help understand the project. Because they know, I mean, you get stuck in a problem and, and you can't advance. And so so they know the struggle that if you're stuck, you know, you try to get unstuck. 
and so mm -hmm. they can try to help you there. And so if you have a good lab and you have a good you have good chemistry with your folks, um, yeah, I mean, you don't work on the same project, but that's where you talk. Or you can have a break. You say, hey, you just want to go get lunch. Uh, you know, we can talk about work. We can talk about other things. You say, hey, I'm struggling with this. What are you guys working on? Um, or whatever, strike up a conversation based on what they're doing um, to see what their, you know, what their struggles are. Like, what are you struggling? Maybe I can help you. Maybe I, I can think of something that you even thought about. Because um, everybody has different ideas. Everybody has, you know, different understandings of the way things work. And so, and so those will help you get, get a, kind of get unstuck. And so that's, that's where talking to your lab mates is, is critical. And then, you know, you don't have to use your lab mates either. Like if you don't like your lab mates, uh, I've had friends who come to me and I don't even do their area of research, uh, but they're trying to understand a problem from a different perspective. And as an engineer, you're knowledgeable, right? So you can say, okay, well, let me, let me think about this. Let's have a conversation. Tell me more about your problem. You, you'd have to know more, right? So, okay, give me more details about the, the, the context of the problem. And then maybe I can help you fill in or something you haven't considered yet. And so there, you know, they can lay out all the problems. And you say, well, okay, I really, I really don't know. Maybe if it's a, biology type problem like, yeah that's the biology right but maybe it's an engineering problem saying hey i'm trying to get this pressure up or i'm trying to get this kind of mixture here how do i how do i perfect the mixture and you could have, probably have some insight that that they hadn't thought about um so yeah right it sounds yeah and i guess you could benefit a lot both from bonding and networking just all together yes. in that environment yes. Yes. i guess another experience i had um in the like my personal experience was there was actually a day where all of the uh, I think it was the lead PhD students for those specific projects would do a presentation for the entire lab. Did you ever experience anything similar? Yeah, yeah, we do it all the time, um, and and I think it's a great thing to do because one, it it prepares you to give to to feel comfortable speaking to other knowledgeable people in the room, um, and and to say, hey, this is what I know, this is what I'm doing. Um, and the level of presentation always varies from lab to lab. Our labs had very like chill presentations. We'd just sit down and just show slides and talk about them. And other lab members would sit there and listen. Some, I know other labs had like more formal talks. You have to stand up and give like a, you know, formatted nice presentation and some were sloppy. And so it just depends on the, on the environment of that lab. And so, so we did that. We did that. We do that all the time. I currently do that with my research students. I have them present to me, kind of go in a circle. That's how we did it in my, my advisor in grad school. Um, each group would go. Each person would go. You know, and it's kind of random. It's like some person has something a lot to say, and they take an hour. Some people have ten minutes of things to say, and it just depends whose day is it to share. Because um, some, you know, research it kind of comes in waves, right? And so I think it's great to do that because you also get to learn what other people are doing. Say, oh, wow, it's a learning experience. So you're like, oh, this person's doing this work and they're working on these molecules and they're working on this device and you get to learn. Um, so the more you, you can absorb, the more you can probably ask questions later and have that conversation say, hey, you know, you go to lunch and say, hey, I noticed you, you, you shared this thing. Have you figured it out from last week? And you say, no, I haven't figured it out. I'm struggling with it. And so you just, it's just kind of building that network uh, that can honestly save you in the future because you're looking for a job and you say, oh, you're, you're a smart person. You've always had to give me great advice and maybe I can help you find something, right? So, so it, it serves many purposes and it also helps build friendships. Okay, yeah. No, that, that's perfect. I think it's, re it's really cool to see that like 
you had that experience with your advisor and that now you're also implementing it with your students. Yeah. 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 Throughout your, uh, I guess, throughout your entire graduate career, did you ever present at a like research symposium? Yeah. Yeah. I presented at conferences. I presented at poster sessions. Uh, I can't say I had a lot of presentations relative to some of the folks that I know. Some people have like presented, I don't know, 20 times by the time they graduate. I presented, I think, five to six times. Um, the first time was, was man, it was, I had practice in front of my lab mates, right? But you get comfortable around them. And so when I when I gave a, a talk in front of a room of 30, 40 people, and it was a giant room, I was nervous. I was like, I'm, I don't know what I'm talking, again, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. People are going to know fraud, so on and so forth. So, <laughs> so it was Kind of nerve-wracking, but I, you know, I got over. It. And once you, once you do it the first time, you're like, oh, it's just not that bad. Nobody was paying attention, actually, and and that's the worst case scenario. You, you do want feedback. I think at the end, like your goal is, you want to present a presentation so that you get some questions so that people can provide a perspective that you haven't thought about, right? And that's really what you want out of these symposiums: is not to present how much information you know, it's how much help you can get from other folks. And, and there's not, that's not that easy because you have to present the information for folks who've never looked at your stuff, right? So you have to present it kind of from a very basic level, if you will. And then and then people can kind of understand and say, oh, I, I know what you're doing. Let me provide some help. Um, let me give you some questions. Have you thought about this? Hey, what is, why does this data look like this, right? So, so what you want out of these talks is an engaged audience um, so they, they can help you more on your information on your work and no that's yeah i can imagine i guess it's probably a very thrilling experience but also very shocking in the moment at least the first time and nerve-wracking yeah. yeah 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 it's it's fun it's fun at the end when you realize you know when you realize what the goal is you're like oh it's not that bad okay fine i could do this again um, and it can be kind of fun because you kind of built a network outside of your school. You get to meet, I mean, when I went, I met folks uh, at the University of um, um, Perugia. I'm pronouncing that wrong, probably. It's an Italian university. I met folks from Spain. And and this is where I, I eventually, so, so within my journey, I got to do a graduate uh, research exchange, if you will, in Spain. Um, with a university that was doing top level top level research in with injectors, and that's what I was doing then. Um, and the only reason why I found out about them was because of the conference. I would read their papers all the time. Like this person's name kept popping up, and so I was like, "This is this is the guy." And I saw him at a conference, and I was like, "Well, he's sitting right there, and I'm presenting on the same topic he's done." I was like, "Let me go talk to him." Right, he didn't ask me any questions, so I had to go talk right. to him. I was a nobody to him, but but that's where you that's where those networks come. And later on, I was like, hey, you know, I sent them an email. I said, hey, I've got research, got some facilities that I want to use. Can I go crash your facility for six months? And he said, yeah, come around, come 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 by. I can't pay you, but if you can fund yourself, I'm willing to host you. You know, as I'll give you a, a computer, I'll give you resources, I'll let you use my machinery. And then you can do whatever experiments you want. And he let me. Um, so, so that's like uh, something that that you know you can look out for when you go to these conferences. These are the networks that you're building. These are effectively your colleagues um, on a global scale. So, mm -hmm. so yeah. 
No, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. I guess, I think, okay, so piggybacking on that being one of the fun experiences you mentioned, what would be, I guess, if you were to pick your top three um, most exciting and thrilling experiences as a mm -hmm. PhD student, what would they be? Okay, so yeah, number one was that. Okay. Um, number two was I uh, did a graduate internship um, that I was able to eventually leverage as part of my thesis, um, but I, I went to Bosch, um, which is a German company that they pretty much make everything. They make everything, power tools, um, injectors, they make vehicle parts, they make a lot of things. So I, I worked with their vehicle division in, um, there in Michigan, in Farmington Hills. So I did that. That was fun. It was like a, it was a three-month internship that was supposed to be on some battery heater that eventually turned into an eight-month eight month internship at working on injectors. And so that was a lot of fun. Um, I learned a lot. I learned, I got to meet a lot of good folks in Bosch. I learned some of the really cool projects and I got some connections and colleagues in, in um, Germany, Bosch, that I still talk to, to today. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was great. And so that's the second one. Um, and the third one, I think, is the fact that I got to meet so many cool folks at Michigan. I think people there are working on, on so many interesting projects. Everybody there is really passionate about what they do. Um, and you can kind of see that passion. Um, you can kind of feel the passion. And, and, and it's great environment to be around because it kind of motivates you more and say, hey, man, people are, people are really excited about what they do. You know, I want to be part of that. And so you kind of, you kind of feel off that energy. And it's a very positive energy. Um, so I think overall, my, my time at Michigan was a great time um, because the people there are great. No, that's fascinating. That's very beautiful to hear, actually. Um, yeah. I guess last question, um, to, one last question before I open it up to any advice you uh, would like to share with the public. Um, yeah. So. I think it's amazing that you had a incredible relationship with your advisor. Um, do you know of anyone that maybe that wasn't the case for them? And let's say you start off, you're not connecting with that advisor and you know, you're going to be with them for many more years and they're going to be very impactful to your career mm -hmm. is what advice do you have for those people or what have you seen um, people that have had that situation do yeah yeah so i've had some i so the not the trivial answer is some folks just kind of write it out and and they're like you know what it's fine i'm gonna just i'm gonna suffer and we'll, we'll get over it i've seen i've seen that which is never healthy because those people work a lot kind of never see your friends and 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 so it's not the greatest um what i have seen other folks is they try to talk to their advisor and, and it goes bad and that's that's the worst case is that you talk to your advisor and you say, hey, I'm not liking this, blah, blah, blah. And then they try to kind of guilt trip you into, into working harder. And that's that's when I would say, go talk to someone else. Go talk to uh, another faculty member that you like, that you've taken a class, or talk to one of those graduate chairs. Because the graduate, there's usually a graduate coordinator as well. So some person who's in charge of all the graduate students, look for that person. Because uh, their job is to make sure that all the graduate students are are okay, right? And so, if they're if they're telling you, oh, you you don't know what you're talking about, that person's great. Like they're on paper, they're great. Then you might want to consider dropping the whole thing or going to a different institution, um, because no one there. Like if you can't find a support system at that place, 
whether it's a different faculty, whether it's you know a student, or whether it's uh, some sort of staff member, then I would consider you know going elsewhere. That's the worst case scenario. I think usually you can resolve a lot of that by talking to your advisor, uh, by talking to another faculty member, or by talking to a staff member and saying, "Hey, I need help. This situation isn't great for me. Is there anything that you can help me figure out?" And then they can help you be a facilitator with the conversation with your advisor, and then they'll they'll behave very differently. If if the first time you approach them and they weren't nice, and then you go around them, and then they you know a facilitator comes in, then they'll act very differently. But then you'll get more of what you want rather than kind of getting what they want. Um, and it's not an easy process. It could be a long, it could be a lengthy process. Right. I, I've seen some very bad scenarios of, you know, Title IX type of interactions between faculty and, and students. And so um, the sooner you can say something, the better. I, I, there's a lot of, and, I, and I've seen it, and I've seen students like fight on, so, Without saying too much, I've seen students fight for their friends on behalf of them because they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't, they didn't know how to, they were uncomfortable fighting for themselves, if you will. So or they didn't know how to, they were like scared of the repercussions. So they, they found a, a person, an ally that said, hey, I need you to help raise some alarms for me. And that person, you know, they did that for them. So, so find that, find those support systems, uh, either students, faculty, staff members, They'll be there and say, "Yeah, I know you. I know you're in a tough position, and I know you probably can't do anything, but I'm going to see what I can do, and I'm going to try to poke some some doors and poke some bears and see if I can get something." Um, so that would be that would be the, again the worst case. Most of the time, I think you can resolve it um, by having a conversation. Okay, sounds perfect. No, thank you so much for answering that question. I know that was one of the I think deeper <laughs> questions I had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that was my last question, but I would like to open it up for any last words of advice that you might have yeah. for people. Yeah, I think my biggest thing is always ask. And I think that's been a common theme with I, on most of my answers is like ask somebody because somebody has been through a very similar situation. And sometimes it feels that like you can ask everybody in that place and you say, they're not helping me. Nobody's helping me. Nobody knows the answer to this. And, and I'm just stuck, right? Um, then you have to just keep asking more people outside of that place and, and go beyond. Um, and sometimes it seems daunting because you're like, well, I don't know who to ask, right? It's like, where do I even begin? Um, but you have to ask, you can begin, you know, with that small and then go beyond and ask me people in that field who do very similar things elsewhere, uh, ask family members, ask people that you know, your friends and say, hey, do you know anybody who has done this before, right? So my, my, strongest advice is that is never be afraid to ask because the worst thing they're going to tell you or the worst thing they're going to do to you is ignore you and that's okay i mean you're not going to learn if you don't ask um and that's the biggest advice that i'd give is don't be afraid to ask questions if you are afraid of a person because the person isn't nice and you've seen them interact then try to ask someone else that you do trust that you do feel comfortable asking and maybe they can help you and maybe they can provide information. I mean, that's happened to me before when I've, when I've interacted with faculty members. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. I was signing up to, uh, when I was interviewing with people at Michigan, I found an advisor who who seemed nice. And they're like, yeah, I'm gonna help you apply. We're gonna find you fellowships. I was like, I don't have any money, but I, you know, you're interested, I'm interested. Let's, let's make this happen. So I think about it. But then I, I talked to folks in another lab who knew about this advisor 
And he was like a person who, who just was never around. And he's like, yo, whatever you do, avoid, <laughs> avoid because you're going to sign up with this person and you're never going to see him. And you're going to be three years later and you're not even going to know what the hell you're doing. You're never going to graduate. And and he told me, he's like, the current student has been there for seven years. And I don't even think he's close to finishing. And I didn't know that if I didn't ask. I was he's like, oh, because they, they, you know, like I had a conversation. They're like, oh, who did you talk to? And I was like, oh, I talked to that person. And they're like, oh, no, 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 avoid, avoid, avoid. And again, it's, you know, it's not that I asked this person, oh, what do you think of that person? But it was a conversation, right? And so right. people around you know things. You got you to gotta kind of probe and say, hey, you know, what do you think about this guy? And, you know, you just ask questions and see what people's reactions are. And then, you know, if, have, if they have pieces of information that you found curious, you know, poke at those questions. Say, hey, what, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? Mm. Um, tell me more. And then people will share. And if they don't share, then you okay, well, let's, let me go ask someone else. Maybe they don't. Right? And so my biggest thing is, is ask as many questions as you can. That's how you'll learn. Okay. So I must ask one more question after you said sure. that. Um, I was told by one of the PhD students that was in the same lab as me that when you graduate, it kind of just depends on whenever the professor thinks you're ready to graduate. So it could mm. be based on the research you're doing, whatever progress. So... A, I'm going to assume that if the professor isn't present there, aside from simply not being able to grow that much because you're not having that guidance you're supposed to have, I'm assuming it also delays the process, the fact that he's not connecting with you to see your progress. Mm -hmm. um, would you confirm that? Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, ultimately your advisor dictates whether you're ready to graduate or not. And if they're never there, um, they don't know what you've done, what you know. And that's tough. Okay. And then question two would be, what do you think is a reasonable time, time frame, time range to graduate with a PhD degree? When is it too much? What's probably the minimum typically? Yeah. So that depends on fields a lot. I mean, well, I know we're talking about ships, so most of us are engineers. Um, but I would say that this varies from field to field. I know business majors, for example, who want to do a PhD take like eight years. You know, people who are in the literature take like 10 years. Um, engineers typically take five to six years. I think the average at Michigan, and most schools publish this average value, but I think it's like six. Um, but you'll see some of your friends graduate four years. I, I know two of my colleagues graduated in four and a half years, and I was like, whoa. I was like, I thought five years was fast. You just graduated in four and a half? I was like, how did you do that? Um, and so it just depends. Uh, but I think the average at Michigan is either five and a half or six. And so you can kind of measure against that. And, and you can kind of always ask your advisor to say, hey, you know, it's year three. How do you do my progress? Am I, am I on the right track to where I need to be? Because in any program, they, have kind of, they kind of have milestones. Most of the time, they have a very preliminary milestone of like, do you understand what basic research is? And, and um, I think it's called the FP exam or the, fundamental, I forgot what it's called, but it's an exam that they make you take it. And it's a presentation. It's not a physical written exam, but it's like, do you understand research? Yes or no. And so that's the first thing you take. It's the first milestone. The second milestone is, um, okay, now tell me what your thesis is going to be about. Like, what's the problem that you're interested in? And that usually happens year three or four. Um, and then the last one is the final thesis presentation that happens year five, six, right? And so... If you're not hitting those milestones um, at a reasonable time, then you start to start raising flags and say, hey, I, I haven't done this and other folks have. Like, I, I feel like I'm ready. Like, let, let's have a conversation about where I'm at with my trajectory of a PhD. Um, 
I think from a from a if if you don't want to have that conversation, you know, again, the, those universities usually tell you the time frame that most of the students graduate. And you can kind of dissect that information and say, okay, well, what are the milestones for graduation? Well, it's, it's exam one, exam two, exam three. Okay, well, what are the typical time frames? Let me ask my colleagues. When did you take your X exam? When did you take that Y exam? And then you kind of build an idea of when the exam should be. Say, okay, well, I should be taking my exam next year. Okay, well, let me go talk to my advisor and say, hey, this is the respect done. Am I ready for this? I think I am. And then they could say, well, let's talk about it. And then so, so yeah. Um, so, so the milestones yeah. are things to consider. Maybe also how your peers are performing. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that? in any way can be also measured by the amount of publications you're making? Yes and no, because some fields publish a lot. They're easy to publish. Like in the world of AI, um, not to dis dismiss that in any way, but I know my, my colleagues can publish in conferences and publishing in conferences are, are much lower bar. Uh, there's no review process or the review process is not as lengthy. And so you can publish in three conferences a year and you can only publish in my field one journal a year. And so it's kind of hard to compare, but it depends on the discipline, right? So if it's standard for your discipline, like say AI to publish two articles every every year or two conferences every year, then that would be a decent way to measure. I just I personally dislike using the number of publications to be ready for graduation, but I know a lot of faculty advisors do that. And that's an easy metric because if I'm not paying attention to the, to like the faculty and students, I say, I'm not really, I don't really know what you're doing. And you, you publish? Okay, you publish three times. Perfect, you're ready to graduate. So some advisors do that because it's easy work for them. And so, and so I'm, some, some advisors might, you know, be upset that I said that, but that's okay. Um, it's kind of an easy way to say, yeah, so because instead of you, the advisor, doing the vetting and saying, you're ready, you let the community of scientists do that, which is not bad. I mean, it's not in any way wrong. It's it's, it's how we, it's, it's just scientists sharing, right? Or engineers sharing uh, opinions. And so if, if you're good enough for the field, then you're good enough for me, right? And that's totally okay. But that does not excuse you from saying, I'm not gonna look at you. You just gotta let the, the community decide whether you're ready or not. And sometimes that happens. And sometimes your advisor is more involved. It's like, it depends. But yeah, it, it, I, it's an okay metric. It's not my preferred metric because it sometimes is an easy way for an advisor to not look at you and say, ah, you're publishing, you're, you're okay, you're ready to graduate, right? And instead of saying, oh, I know what you're doing, I know the work you're doing, and I know how much impact you've made. Um, and so that's less work for them. No, yeah, that's that's totally understandable. No, well, now that was my last question. Awesome. Um, I guess with that, we have reached the end of our episode. But before we go, I want to thank you again for joining us, Mario. Um, I think you shared a lot of valuable um, knowledge. And I think your experiences is proof that like it, it is never too late. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Arela, for having me. Um, I'm always happy to share advice when I can. It's kind of why I signed up to be a professor. Um, I enjoy mentoring. I enjoy helping others. So, so yeah, happy to help. No, thank you. And for our listeners out there, if you ever have any thoughts about this podcast series, you can reach us at shipuofm.eboard at gmail.com. With this being the last episode in our series, I'd like to give one last shout out to our alumni network that made this podcast series possible by sharing all of their knowledge and tips. 
and to the SHIP Alumni Committee, which consists of Christian Vela, the SHIP Alumni Committee's YouTube chair, Fabian Ruiz Miranda, our SHIP Alumni Committee's podcast chair, and lastly, Alexia Moreno and Leonardo Guillen, the SHIP Alumni Networking Chairs, for working with me in putting together this podcast. I really hope you all enjoyed this content and that you were able to benefit from hearing the marvelous stories of our alumni Having such an amazing ship chapter at our university, I'm sure you'll continue hearing from us in the future. But until then, go blue.